1: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, so that means we kick off the news panel, which also means we bring in Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Good morning, Joita, and good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Okay, let's let's try this one more time. Good morning, Joita.
0: Good morning, Dave. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I got you loud and
1: clear. And good and good morning, Michelle.
2: I'm here too, I swear. There you go.
1: Sometimes our panel is so exciting, we need to say hello twice. Okay, guys, let's jump right into our first topic. It's been six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. I want to give you some baseline statistics here. Over 5,000 civilians have been killed. Tens of thousands of military personnel have died. Millions of refugees have fled the country. Billions of dollars in direct military and humanitarian assistance have been spent. Indirectly, we're rapidly approaching a trillion dollars. Energy prices have skyrocketed. And the war has catalyzed a significant food crisis, particularly in developing countries. Juita, those are just the baseline numbers. But I know you've got more threads that you want us to tug at here.
0: Yes, and the most important one I think is whether anyone is surprised that it 's dragged on as long as it has it 's had the the war in Ukraine has had tremendous ripple effects uh, across the world, impacting everything from humanitarian aid, displacing uh millions of people. Uh, it's diverted in a lot of cases, a lot of money and funding towards fighting the war. Um, And there have been significant sanctions imposed on Russia. So I'm curious about whether um, the current regime will be able to survive. Um, This is a really, this is a story that has dominated the headlines for the last six months. And uh, I think it's a good time to uh, take a breath and look back on the last six months, and also to look forward and and think through some of the implications of the war and um, on on Russia, on re- Ukraine, but also right here in Canada, and um, you know, also of course in Europe, so many displaced refugees and things of like that. So there are many things to unravel here, and I look forward to talking to all of you about them.
1: So when we first talked about the war on this panel after the invasion, some speculation had already existed from analysts about a quagmire. What Russia had walked into here and how long this conflict might last. And I threw some cold water on that. I said, we can't talk about a quagmire two days into an invasion of a country. Now we're six months in, and it really does appear that a lot of the focus in fighting really is, eastern U- is in eastern Ukraine. It seems like the charge to Kyiv is pretty much off the table at this point. So I would say that I am, I'm a little surprised by how bogged down this war has already become and how focused some of the fighting has become. Michelle, what about you?
2: Uh, I'm not so surprised, but I can't chalk that up to my own, you know, military brilliance or anything. It's just that I I always tend to assume the worst with these things and tend to assume that they're going to drag on longer than expected. And also, I didn't have a particularly good grasp of what the situation with the Russian military was and the kind of force they could muster and what kind of offensives they could press forward with successfully. Um, I still don't feel like I have a terrific handle on that. It's actually quite interesting to see when when you're talking about some of those numbers, to. Watched international efforts to come to grips with, with with the Russian military situation is what their casualty count has been, uh, what kind of resources they have available to them. That kind of stuff is still a bit up in the air. But you're, I mean, it, it's it's pretty clear now that things are, are bogging down. I think the quagmire metaphor is apt now. Um, it's been interesting to see some pieces taking stock of where things stand. And basically what's happened is Ukraine has successfully pushed back a number of, of Russian defences. There's a couple of regions where the Russians have been able to seize control. Uh, even there, though, in some of those regions, there just seem to be a bit of pushback. So, uh, I unfortunately suspect we might be having this conversation for a while.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll end up having it at nine months, and twelve months, and fifteen months, and eighteen months. And Michelle, I think you on, end-
2: on that on that front. Can I just add too that some people have been quite rightly pointed out that it's been six months of war for those of us watching from the west. For people living in some regions of the Ukraine, they're talking about years worth of yeah. fighting. Twenty fourteen. This is not in fact all that yeah, new.
1: Twenty fourteen yeah. Crimea. So it, yeah, that's been an ongoing. It's been ongoing. Something battles, yeah.
2: It's something we outsiders tend to lose track of, I think, in mm-hmm. Scale of the suffering going on. Over
1: yeah. There. Michelle, you identified there that there's been a lot of support coming in from uh, nations all across the world, whether it be direct military aid, whether it be money, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that's another reason as to why this has gone on as, as long as it has because of just the sheer volume of support that's come from world powers like the UK, come mm-hmm. from the US, come mm-hmm. from Australia. There's There's been a lot of spending to keep the keep Ukraine in this position, in this war, to continue protracting the conflict. Joey, Sorry, we. You asked the question, then Michelle and I went off on our own little honor pathway there. But are you surprised the conflict has gone on this long?
0: Um. Yes and no. Um, many commentators, especially those who were in support of uh, of the of the Russian invasion, were saying that this is going to be a quick uh, victory. And of course, we know now that it wasn't a a quick victory, but at the time, many soldiers and officers had packed their parade uniforms, expecting that they'll need to pull them out like in a few days, maybe a few weeks. And I think the reason for the optimism was that the Russian military had perceived itself as liberators. Yeah. and that there would not be as much grassroots opposition to the invasion as there has been. And of course, you both pointed out that there's been a lot of spending to prop up the war. Um, the the West in particular has both heavily sanctioned Russia, but has also diverted a, a billions of dollars towards uh, military aid um, and rallied NATO because there's a lot of uh, fear about uh, Russian expansionism, especially when you look at some of the countries that used to form the former Soviet bloc. Uh, now, of course, countries like Poland and Romania, um, which border Russia and our NATO members today being concerned about uh, this uh, this war and, of course, perceived, perceived Russian expansionism. If you think back to the Afghanistan war, um, there had not been nearly as much consternation uh, about Russia invading Afghanistan. There uh, had in that instance also been a great deal of foreign aid uh, funneled towards the uh, the opponents of uh, Russia's opponents in that war. And the war in Afghanistan, of course, dragged on for 10 years. So um, it really comes down to who you talk to when you think about whether there was surprise or consternation about how long this war has dragged on. But I think it's evident today that the war is in a bit of a quagmire and it is likely to carry on in
1: this vein for quite some time. Joita, you mentioned the sanctions and certainly that is having an impact on the Russian economy. And there are some folks that continue to speculate what kind of impact that may have on Vladimir Putin. As we think about the two leaders at the centre of this, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin in Russia... What do you think their hold on power is as we move forward here? Because I think I think there's been a lot of speculation mm-hmm. about Putin. I don't know if there's been as much about Zelensky, but especially the last month or so, last six weeks or so, he's ratcheted up the tenor by which he's asking for more resources and asking for more sanctions. And I actually wonder at what point allies start saying, Hey, we actually need you to get to the negotiating table on this that we're we're propping you up. we're spending a lot of money, we're dealing with an energy crisis here. We actually need you to try and start negotiating something to get out of this war. so I so so I don't just want to focus here strictly on Putin, but both <clears throat> leaders at the center of this Michelle, what what do you make of the push and pull and pressures that may exist on those particular leaders?
2: I think you raise a really, really good point about where Zelensky's been headed lately. Uh, that said, I think it's going to take a lot for the early, early impressions of his wartime leadership to fade. Mm-hmm. I think when people hear Volodymyr Zelensky's name, they still picture, like, early on, the guy who was right there in the streets making really stirring addresses, powerful appeals to people, really embodying the sort of we are going to go fight him spirit that we've been seeing for a lot from Ukraine. Um, so I suspect his position is still pretty safe for the time being, but you raise a very good point about a potential shift in tone or, or, or dialogue or support levels at some point. Not yet. We're still seeing the U S recently signed like a huge bill of additional aid for Ukraine. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, 3 Germany billion and Canada. Th- 3 billion yeah, of direct like, aid promised this week. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's a few bucks. Um, you know, Canada and Germany were still, uh, very much on, on side with, with Zelensky in, in their recent meetings, uh, Secretary General of NATO is, is is in town today. We're going to hear a news conference. If Ukraine doesn't come up there, I don't know much about news. Um, <laughs> so I, like, I I think it's going to be a while before we see a shift. But you, the the you know the possibility certainly exists. As for Putin, I again I'm kind of hesitant to really take a, a bold stand here. Um, people who know a whole lot more than I do on this front say that there is suggestions of, of mounting tensions internally, uh, within the Kremlin. I, I do, I can't, I, I have no choice but to sort of take their word for it. Uh, but certainly a lot of people who have opposed the war in Russia have either been punished or have fled the country. Uh, there's been a lot of, of, uh, Back and forth and, and drama recently, uh, most recently resulting in, in the, the killing of uh, Putin ally's daughter. So it's it's a very tricky situation and one that I hesitate to really c- concretely get my arms around.
1: Yeah, it's, it's even tough to wrap our head around a lot of the reporting on the ground in Russia because so many That's agencies yeah. have pulled out of Russia, right? There's been such a disconnect. It's, it's almost all-
2: like a free press really matters. Yeah. Thing.
1: Wow. <laughs> Michelle, uh, uh, stirring remarks from Michelle McQuig on a Friday morning. Uh, Joita, what do you make of the position of the uh, two leaders at the center of this?
0: Um, with Zelensky, again, I have to agree with a lot of what Michelle is saying. He's still lauded as a hero, as someone who made stirring speeches and, this, and got, really, got people fired up. But I think when you think about Zelensky and whether or not diplomatic efforts have failed, and evidently, forgive me for stating the obvious, they're clearly not working. Um, I think it comes back to curtailing uh, Russia's ambitions. And so, yes, there is uh, an inflation uh, is a problem. Yes, gas prices and food prices have shot through the roof. Um, The only reason why, or one of the reasons why Ukraine is still getting as much support as it is, despite these obvious problems, and despite the large amounts of military spending is because there is a lot of concern about Russian expansionism and um, NATO and its um, And NATO allies wanting to curtail that, so I don't think that Zelensky is at any any sort of risk at the moment of losing his grip on power. With that said, we know that wars going badly um, often do prompt regime changes, and if you think about how uh, things are going for Russia at the moment, I, I referred to the war in Afghanistan and. Already in six months of fighting in Ukraine, Russia has lost about 15,000 soldiers, which equals the total number of casualties Russia suffered in Afghanistan over 10 years. That's huge. Uh, so again, they're, they're clearly a, a fa- dealing with a far higher casualty count. Um, I uh, Michelle alluded to the assassination of Putin allies uh, and 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 but it's unclear whether she, the daughter who was assassinated, was the intended target or uh, whether it was her father and she got caught in the in the crossfire or in the crosshairs. Uh, but uh, Russian intelligence is claiming that Ukraine did it. But there are also Russian dissident groups who are taking uh, responsibility for this, and there are protests. Uh, not you know. Not made significant protests, but protests in Russia opposing the war. Of course, um,
1: one. Of oh, I wonder. The if, Russian
0: economy uh, is suffering as a result of the war for the first time. So- Hello.
1: Sorry, Joita, We had a we had Hello? a little we had a little break up okay. in the middle in the middle of your sentence there. So re- re- sorry about re- that. So re- rewind, Russian- rewind by ten seconds.
0: Sure. So, um, in addition to some of the political instability, the Russian economy is also suffering as a result of the war. For the first time since 1989, Russia has actually defaulted on its debt. Not to mention that the ruble is in decline. So, we one of the things you know we talk a lot about is the exodus of Ukrainian migrants, but 300,000 Russians have also left, and we're mostly talking about professionals and specialists. I have say That given the massive EU and U.S. sanctions against Russia and the impacts of that, it's entirely possible that the oligarchy in Russia is going to turn around and uh, and hold Putin responsible. And with that said, he's been around since uh, like as far as back as 2000 in some capacity or other. So he's quite pernicious, and I don't know if this alone will dislodge him from power. But uh, wars, not, as I just said a few minutes ago, wars not going well a really significant factor in prompting regime change. So I, I, I. I I don't want to get into crystal ball gazing and predictions and you know trying to figure out what's going to happen down the road but I think Vladimir Putin is inf- in a far more precarious position compared to Zelensky, uh, at least in the way that things are, are shaking up right now.
1: As always, we're already tight for time, guys. So we need to be quick on our thoughts in regards to the refugee crisis. But certainly there have been some threads to pull at here um, in regards to the way that Ukrainian refugees have been treated, uh, oftentimes, especially in Canada, opened with wel- uh, welcomed with open arms. But Michelle, any thoughts on the refugee crisis side of the conflict?
2: Yeah, uh, we're starting to see now the fact that uh, the fact that a country is willing to welcome refugees warmly and openly does not necessarily mean that they're willing or, or able to support them properly when they arrive. Uh, this is where we're starting to see some of that action develop. Now, uh, we've already ha- seen, for instance, some groups of refugees calling for and eventually getting meetings with with with. Uh, prominent medical officials, for instance, to try and secure health care. Uh, we're hearing more of these kinds of stories. And it is interesting to do things that we don't have time for today, but on another day it might be fun to do a more of a deep dive contrast between the way certain groups of refugees are welcomed in, in, in this country. Um, the Syrian refugee crisis is another obvious uh, starting point, that, although that one went better than my, many might expect. But for instance, if you're talking about real-time comparisons, Uh, Looking at the way Ukrainian refugees and those fleeing the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan have been treated would make for a good exercise one of these days.
1: Yeah, I I think we at times have touched on that over the last six months as well. So it's it's not as if that has not been addressed on this show, but that's why I'm saying we Mm -hmm. need to be a little bit quicker here, Joita. But I know that aspect did jump out to you.
0: Yeah, that's certainly something that we can delve into a little bit more. But there's a couple of things here. One, uh, although the reception towards Ukrainian refugees has generally been very positive, at least in Eastern Europe, Europe, where they've accepted a large number of, uh, of refugees, that sentiment is starting to vein a little bit. Plus, we want to be really clear, not all refugees fleeing the, the war in Ukraine have been treated the same, especially when you think about Roma refugees. They've really been treated very differently from non-Roma refugees, according to reporting by CNN. Uh, many have been put in a very non-standard detention conditions, have been refused uh, refugee status because they didn't have passports. There have been allegations made that they're not Ukrainian. So it also matters which refugees from Ukraine we're actually talking about. One of the things um, that there, there has been a really warm welcome for Ukrainian refugees in Canada. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there is already a really well-established Ukrainian diaspora in places in Canada. They've been been around for decades, so there were a lot of people with Ukrainian origins who were willing to rally the community and rally support for refugees fleeing the war. I think that might be one of the reasons that might explain why Ukrainian refugees have had a different trajectory in places like Canada vis-a-vis other refugee groups.
1: We talked a little bit about some of the cascading impacts and effects of this war, both in the intro that I gave, but also through a couple of answers in this question. I'm going to hold you guys to one each, one impact or effect of this war that jumps out to you. For me, it's actually a little bit of positivity. We've seen a lot of push now towards more investment in renewable energy. Frankly, it should have happened 15 years ago, but this war certainly has catalyzed that conversation and even catalyzed some deals. We saw the hydrogen deal signed between Canada and and Germany this week, although there's going to be some practicality questions on that getting done. But I think it's very positively impacted the renewable energy conversation. Michelle, what about you?
2: It certainly has. That's a good one. I uh, I keep coming back to inflation because it well, it's not the only factor at the heart of this issue, it is a big one. And I suspect the inflation is going to be a driving factor in a number of elections to come. The U.S. midterms are the most obvious example coming up. But I think uh, inflation is going to be the elephant in the room for a number of political conversations in numerous countries in the years ahead. So I think it's unavoidable that the war in Ukraine does not get enter that mix in some form.
1: the last word to you. It's got to be quick, but an impact of the war that jumps out to you.
0: Well, it's not going to be natural resources or inflation because you guys talked about it, but I think I just want to maybe talk a little bit about the impact on humanitarian work. Uh, according to the Red Cross, this war in Ukraine has really stretched humanitarian and relief efforts and has had impacts on other conflict and war zones uh, across the world. So it'll be really interesting to see how those efforts uh, pan out if this war continues to drag on.
1: Guys, thank you for reflecting on these last six months and some of the bigger implications. You've been listening to Now with Dave Brown. Hit the subscribe button on any podcast platform and leave us a rating and a review.
2: I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.